the World Nomads podcast bonus episode. Hear amazing nomads sharing their knowledge, stories and experience of world travel. Hi, it's Kim and Phil here with an amazing nomads episode featuring Tim Vores. Now, just before we swing into that, make sure you join the World Nomads group on Facebook. There's insights into destinations from travellers and experts, and we fill you in what World Nomads is up to and who we're chatting with, just like Tim. Now, he's a passionate long-distance hiker. Now, he's hiked in numerous countries and continents, including the Pacific Crest Trail in the US. Took him six months. Oh, my word. Of course, he wrote a book about it, and it's called The Great Alone, which is as much about physical and mental endurance as it is about overcoming loneliness and fear. Ultimately, Tim says, it's about the power of the wilderness to restore the human spirit. Well, I'm going to kick this chat off with a question, Mm -hmm. Phil, that is in no way judgmental. But Tim, you left your wife and your family to undertake this hike six months away. Why? Very good question. Um, Well, on on the one hand, I I, I still don't have the answer to that. And the other side, I kind of have a hundred answers. I think it's not one big reason. I think it's very much about also the, you know, in our society, we generally do everything together as partners with your wife and your children. And I also felt it was sort of good or healthy to not do everything together. So I also stimulated my wife to spend about a month or more, two months a year uh, walking to the Camino de Santiago, which you may know. And, and we'd, we'd done this together when we were, before we had children. And so it's great to do stuff together as a family, but it's also, I think, quite good and healthy to do stuff uh, separately. So you can um, be who you are as an individual and grow and, you know. So this is kind of a, a process that we've sort of slowly uh, walked down the past, I would say, five years, where my wife actually started uh, the, these walks down to Santiago, and she's, she's doing that every year. And I sort of started doing my little trips. It started off to... Uh, Africa for two weeks and then to Japan for two months and then it kind of got out of control I do admit that uh, walking six months across America yeah that's not a little trip is it so was it a life-changing hike for you I, I find life-changing a very big word but I have to admit that my life did kind of shift after coming home after the six months yeah I think just spending so much time out of the, the bubble that you know of work and uh, family and uh, friends, and it just gives you time to reflect. I wouldn't say it changed me like in one way very big, but it changed lots of little things in a very small way. And I guess if you add those, all those things up, it is quite a, has been quite a bit of a change. So was there a shift in dynamic, and we'll get to the actual trek, but was there a shift in dynamic once you returned home to your wife and your children? Was there a settling period for you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I've probably like th- three years back and I'm still in the process or they are. And I think a lot of things changed because we wanted to put treks more central into the whole life, if you will, from both me and my wife. So we spend money very differently. Basically, we save a lot of money. So the way we, as a family, go about earning money and spending money is, is really changed. Um, so obviously, uh, secondhand clothes didn't go down that well with the kids, but you know they are getting into it. 
<laughs> so you made a conscious effort to look at the way you spend money so that you could use what you're saving to travel? Is this where we're going with well, this? It's no, I, it's not so much that, but it's just so you, uh, I work very hard um, like we all do, but just to sort of change the dynamic of working and not working, I would, I would say so it's not just about travel, but it's just spending less money like I used to before, buying stuff and, and, and everything. So just being on each level of how we spend money, being much more conscious um, so that you can maximize the time that you're not working. But it's also funny that sometimes, obviously, if you're gone as a dad for um, six months and you come back and you sort of tell the kids what to do, they sort of give you this big, long death stare and say, excuse me, uh, uh, and, and, and I say to my wife, who's this uh, hobo, who, who, uh, this homeless guy sitting at the table, uh, you know? So they do make a lot of jokes. And, and I think it's very, yeah, it's humbling also, you know? The, sort of, I, I think also the, 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 the role that I played before as a father and after is very different uh, in that in the way I sort of interact with my children. Well, let's get to the hike then. It was across America on the Pacific Crest Trail. So what made you decide on that one in particular? I'd heard about it for quite some years, uh, I think from a magazine that I'd read and I'd seen pictures and, you know, when, when people were doing it perhaps in the late 70s, 80s and very few people, perhaps only 10 people did it every year. And now it was one of those sort of, you know, when you read a book about Everest, you're like, oh, it's great, but you know you're never going to do it. But as I sort of progressed in doing these long treks, um, I, I walked all the way across Japan. And when I'd finished that, I felt I was still terrified of the idea, but I felt I was finally perhaps ready to prepare myself mentally and physically and buy new gear. And once I'd sort of dis then just started discussing it with my wife and my children and started saving money for about two years. Uh, because the trek itself isn't actually that ex expensive. It's more actually the family at home that, uh, in my case, wasn't earning that much money while I was gone. So I had to really save for the, to, to make sure there was enough money for the, the family to go around. Yeah, so then I, I felt I was ready. And I, like I said, I was still very scared how on earth I was going to find enough water in the desert. And I had no idea how to do this whole resupply thing with food as you only, uh, yeah, you only go through a town perhaps every four to seven days. So I, I had no idea how that would work. So there was lots of sort of insecurities that I had sort of had to fix in the year prior to the hike. Well, you've documented it in a book called The Great Alone, and you do say that it's certainly not for the faint-hearted, this, this hike. What challenges did you experience along the way? Um, so not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing is that you don't really know what's going to happen around the corner. Uh, there, the, the trail and the weather and the elements just throw so many curveballs at you, so much unexpected things that I guess that's the sort of, you've got, yeah, you think you sort of know how it all works and then suddenly a thunderstorm bro breaks out or you think you've sort of got everything settled and you get a small foot injury or it's all these little things that 
actually are quite big things out there because you're work, you're hiking about a marathon a day and yeah your body has to be up to par and it's very different than hiking in uh, in most other places in the world because you just never see any human built structures or civilizations so if something goes wrong it's about a 3 to 4 day hike to uh to civilization to get some help so it's you kind of feel that the whole time you that the how small and vulnerable you are so among those 20 things that you carried on your back was there a satellite phone i mean you went through bear country what if you were injured how would you possibly hike 3 days for help with with an injury from a bear as an example yeah good good question i think i mean i was a father and uh, obviously had a, a responsibility at home and i could also financially afford it so i did buy a uh, let's say a sat nav sort of tracking device. Um, so it wasn't a satellite telef- telephone, but it did have a, like an SOS button on it, and it and I could uh, send two way messages to my wife, so that I could sort of um, basically, if someone perhaps died on the, in here in Holland in my family, uh, like an, uh, an older person, that I could be connected and uh, that I could hurry home. Or the other way around, I guess, if I would slide down uh, the mountain and I could press on the button for help. So I didn't, I definitely did, you know, check all my insurances. And it's funny, my wife doesn't fly at all. So she said, you know, if you slide off a mountain and you you go in coma, I'm not going to go over to the States and uh, sit at your bed. So I had to uh, do another insurance, which is like a hospital plane. Yeah, it, it wasn't. It wasn't actually that expensive, but that would fly me back to Holland um, should I come in some serious situation. So I, I definitely had all my sort of what if scenarios covered, but in in reality, I didn't actually use the device more than three times just to send uh, actually to ask my wife if uh, what had happened with Brexit vote. <laughs> You had a lot on your mind then when you were hiking. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, I, it was funny. I was actually hiking with an Englishman just uh, just then in, in the high Sierras, and it was we had about eleven days without uh, you know cell coverage uh, in the most beautiful uh, American mountains you can imagine. But we were talking about this Brexit, and he was actually very for pro Brexit, and I was uh, against it. And so we were having these long sort of. Uh, yeah philosophical conversations uh, high in the mountain but it was kind of interesting to know who had won and so tell me why doesn't your wife fly then i guess she's scared of flying and she just doesn't feel she needs it in her life you know europe's pretty beautiful and she's like i'm fine without flying yet you say in your book the world is waiting it is but i guess this is for everyone on their own terms right the world can be the next city generally if you make a bit of an effort within about an hour or two anyone in the world can be in nature so i think that's that's kind of what i mean by the world is waiting there there are just so many exciting new things to see we generally just stay in our our well-known patterns that's i guess what i'm trying to say now this pacific crest trail um meandering through soaring peaks of the Sierra Nevada to Canada and then the American West with mountain 
lakes and nights under the stars. This is all how it's described in your book. Tell us about it. Well, as I said, coming from a very flat country where I live, I actually lived three metres under sea level. It was very difficult to sort of imagine what this wild, rugged uh, land of America would be. And I, I think the, the best way to describe it is that it's just very diverse, changing, you know, when you least expect it. But the first seven weeks, you're basically walking through a, a Western set. It's very desert. It's close to Mexico, obvious, obviously. So you're walking through the mountainous desert, very rocky, dry, with getting used to snakes for the first time in my life and, and really being very conscious about the water. Obviously, uh, the water source is being very far apart in the desert. So you're really carrying sometimes up to eight liters of water and being very yeah aware of the fact that you just don't want to be out of water. So that was... A, but also it was just this wide open country no trees and i just loved it you could you would always have beautiful sunsets and i wouldn't rarely set up my tent and just sleep under the stars and then going up into the sierra mountains it's more like the alps and you know snow-capped mountains very sharp and rugged a lot more work if you will to zigzag up and over all the passes but then obviously there's lots more water so you're not carrying as much water and you can swim in the beautiful icy lakes and i mean it's very serious country so you don't want to slip and fall but it is just stunningly beautiful and it's you know here in europe we have the beautiful alps but <clears throat> they're full of ski lifts and beautiful old ancient villages and out there in america it's just empty nothingness it's just amazing and then up and over the north Ca california is a bit more what the americans would call a bit more boring but personally, I, I loved it. It was, um, it was just beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, you walk through a lot of dead, burnt forests and then up into Oregon, which is sort of like Lord of the Rings country with beautiful sort of sleeping volcanoes. And then up into the Washington, which just is even more beautiful with these mossy forests and the snow-capped uh, volcanoes. And it just... It's amazing America. It just goes on and on and on and it's empty and sure there are a lot of other hikers but out on the trail you generally sort of spread out and you, you can just be walking for hours and hours and not see anyone else. How nice. Look you spoke of snakes and we mentioned earlier bear territory. Did you have any encounters with the wildlife? Yeah sure. I mean I think it was already within about three days that I saw my first snake a rattlesnake and I, yeah I, especially the sound obviously is i mean it scares the shit out of you and and you really have to sort of think of how to best approach them because especially if they're lying curled up on the trail but i did notice that because you saw them basically every day you really do get used to it and um if you sort of handle them with respect and obviously they have a lot of space out there in nature they're not really looking to annoy or attack you. With bears, obviously, it's a little bit different, but it, they have black bears in, in this part of the country. So bears were more interested in your food than in actually in you yourself. So if we did see a bear, they generally just ran off really fast. You had to grab your camera if you could try and get a picture in time. Yeah, I mean, you saw a lot of deer. Uh, so I think in general... There were not very many scary uh, animal wildlife encounters. Um, obviously, that can happen and you can get pretty freaked out and you have to be 
you know, just use your common sense, really. Now, you um, said at the start of the podcast pretty much that you had to do a lot of research before and it took a long time before you headed off on this hike. But fortunately for others in the Great Alone, walking the Pacific Crest Trail, you've pretty much done the work for everyone is the obvious story of what you did, but also the details of uh, hiking etiquette to planning your food, and resupply boxes and, and um, navigating some of that bare territory that we spoke about. What would you say to anyone thinking of spending that much time away from the real world? The most important thing is not to postpone too long. Give yourself a bit more than a year to prepare, both mentally and financially and, uh, and, and gear and visas and all those kind of things. And, and it's, it's going to terrify you just as much as it did me. But generally, if you just take it step by step and don't rush, things generally will work out. We will have a link to the book in show notes along with an article on what you are and aren't covered for when hiking or trekking. So thanks for that, Tim. It's beautifully illustrated, isn't it, that book? And look, we're also pretty lucky that Tim has shared some of the photos, which will stick in show notes as well. Um, Six months, that's because the Pacific Crest Trail is 2,650 miles long. That's like 4,200 kilometres. That's a long walk. It is a long walk, isn't it? Maybe sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Next week, China, and speaking of photos, we chat to one of the first Westerners allowed to take pics in the country. See ya. See ya.